Welcome to the KitCast podcast. Three middle-aged Asian men from the North give their view on the hot topics of the week and much more besides. Enjoy. Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode four of the KitCast podcast. As usual, I'm Kazi, and I've got with me Imi and Carver. Say hello, boys. Hello, boys. Bonjour. <laughs> wow. A bit of a confidential from Carver there, speaking French. It was French, wasn't it, Carver? Uh, oui, oui, oui. <laughs> Excellent. Okay. So, what are we going to talk about today? As some of you may have seen in our trailers, we're going to tackle a big topic today, and that's racism, and specifically institutional racism. Let me start off by a, a little bit of history, I guess. One of the key moments for me when I was growing up was the murder of uh, black teenager Stephen Lawrence, going back to the 22nd of April, 1993. I understand that some of the younger generation may not know too much about it, so without going into too much detail of the specifics of the case, there was a black teenager who was murdered in a racially motivated attack whilst waiting for a bus in Eltham, set on the evening of the 22nd of April. Now, as a result of that particular murder and the subsequent police investigation, there was a report that came out in July 1997, uh, almost four years or over four years later, um, headed by Judge McPherson. And that really was a seminal moment um, in terms of race relations in this country, because the findings of it, although they were focused on the Metropolitan Police who conducted the investigation into the murder, it was also about society at large and whether institutional racism was an issue. And the findings were that it was. It was systematic, not only in the police force, but across various institutions in the UK. So I guess, boys, the way that I want to kick it off today is let me know what you guys understand by the term institutional racism. For me, uh, institutional racism, I think the term's gone more towards structural or systemic racism now. It's a system in which institutional practices, the culture within an institution, reinforce racial inequality. And that could include any institution from police, health, the judicial system to education. And all in all, they all act to reinforce white privilege. I mean, is that your kind of understanding or have you got a different view on it? I would say that mine is uh, similar, but what I'd like to point out is uh, the difference between the individual showing racism within an organisation and the collective uh, organisation itself showing uh, that racist behaviour. So I think you've got to be careful when uh, talking about systemic racism, uh, institutional racism, you've got to be careful that you're not uh, tarring everybody with the, same, uh, with the same brush. We need to highlight that if it is the individual that's showing uh, the racist behaviour, or if it's actually a practice that's encouraged by the entire organisation. Okay, so what I think may help here is I've actually got a definition from the McPherson report that kind of touches on both the points that you've made. I think it might be a good starting point for us uh, to kind of keep the discussion on point as well. So the way that the McPherson report defines institutional racism is the collective failure of an organisation to provide an appropriate and professional service to people because of their colour, culture or ethnic origin. It goes on to say that it can be seen or detected in processes, attitudes and behaviour which amount to discrimination through unwitting prejudice, ignorance, thoughtlessness and racist stereotyping which disadvantage minority ethnic people. Okay, so if we kind of use that as the basis of our uh, discussion, um, Carver, would you say then we are, as I said, 23 years after the McPherson report now? Is institutional racism still an issue for us? 
I think it's a massive issue for us. Whatever institution you're looking at, police, be it education, NHS, all of these have got significant problems with structural or systemic racism. And it's all there in plain black and white. It's also acknowledged by all of these institutions to a certain extent that institutional racism exists within them. I don't know if I, uh, I, mean, I don't know if that sits well with me or not. Uh, we're living in an age now where, where, like you said, 25 years after Stephen Lawrence, 20 odd years after the McPherson report, we've had 67 out of 70 of his recommendations that have been adopted. So we're living in an age now where I think people have realized in the past that there was a problem with racism. I mean, okay, fair enough. I'm not going to be stupid enough to say there is no problem with racism now. Of course there is. And I would never be that ignorant to say that uh, no, racism doesn't exist now. Of course it does. Uh, so let me just pre uh, preempt that fact, first of all. But what I'd say is that all the organizations that McPherson uh, alluded to in his report have made a conscious effort to try and address those issues. They've got processes in place now where if you feel like you're being victimized, if you feel like you're being racially um, uh, abused, racially harassed, uh, or you've been victimized in any kind of way, not just racially, if you have any of those kind of situations, if you feel any kind of discrimination, there are processes in place that would redress that, or at least take a look uh, to see whether the actual institution is being discriminatory. I agree. There are processes in place and all of the institutions, by law, have to have some kind of equality policy, some way of reporting harassment. However, when you look at the statistics across all the major institutions in the UK, systemic racism is still there. Why are black people eight times more likely to be stopped and searched compared to white people? Why are 7% of police officers from a BAME background when 40% of the population is? 25% of black teenage boys convicted of murder are given maximum jail sentences. Not one white teenager got more than 10 years. All of these are just for policing. They may have structures and systems to report when you're being harassed. Actual culture within the organisations, the way the organisations act, are still reinforcing white privilege. The the black sentencing, I can't uh, defend, to be honest. I mean, I've looked, I've looked through the stats uh, myself, and uh, this does seem to be an anomaly there. I'll agree with you on that one. But what I would say is that from the Met's own uh, studies, the, that's the Met Police, sorry, they have extrapolated, they've got this matrix, and they say that uh, there's at least 90% of the gang members in and around London are black or minority ethnic. Based on those statistics, would they would they not be focusing on that? So when you say that uh, 8 out of 10 uh, people uh, that have been stopped and searched are black, isn't that just the Met Police looking at their uh, statistics and saying, well, we're, we're not racially profiling, but this is how, in order to sort the problem out with uh, gangs, in order to sort the problem out with the gang crime and all the other crimes that it uh, connects with, this is what we have to do. The statistics might say that 80% or 90% of gang members are black or minority ethnic. That does not mean all black or minority ethnic people, 90% of black or minority ethnic people are members of gangs. Gangs are a small subset. Police going out and stopping black and minority ethnic young men is just creating a culture of low expectations. When they see a black young man, they're automatically conflating him with a gang member. They're stopping these people, and this is just another way of reinforcing black and minority ethnic people disengagement with the police. This kind of culture of low expectations is at every institution. 
in schools there is clear evidence that teachers tend to under-report the progress that is being made by black and minority ethnic students. Imagine the impact of this in this coronavirus epidemic where teachers are making huge decisions about what grade people, students are going to get and how is this uh, racial bias amongst the teachers going to impact on these young people? Is it going to reinforce that low expectation? And this low expectation is reinforced by lots and lots of institutions, which creates a vicious circle that black and minority ethnic people are being trapped in. No, uh, OK, just a couple of things there. First of all, um, the Met Police, when they've done the Matrix, are saying that they've studied uh, what they believe to be either known gang members or suspected gang members. Now, the word suspected, OK, fair enough, that brings its own connotations. What I'm saying is that the Met Police just haven't picked these numbers out of a hat or they haven't just plucked them out of thin air, have they? So they've done some research into this and they found these numbers. So for them to be focusing on that side, isn't that a certain justification? Now, I know what you're saying in regards to education, but if again, and I'll go back to this uh, same point that if uh, there is systemic bias or this, you know institutional racism within the education system, then there are checks and balances there as well to redress that situation. If you feel that your child isn't being uh, supported in school, you've got uh, the option of taking them out of school, uh, taking them in, into another school. You can, you can call the board of governors, you can call the headmaster, and uh, redress any problems that there would be. So how could we say that it's a systemic failure? I mean, just picking up on that point, actually, uh, boys, um, and it's a good discussion. But one of the other things that the McPherson report came out with, specifically in terms of education, was looking at the whole curriculum itself and seeing whether that actually engendered some kind of racist behaviour, if you like, or almost um, indoctrinated uh, children into a certain way of thinking and whether education was at the very root of creating this systematic you know, prejudice as people moved you know, in and out of it. So from my point of view, it's great that we've got Carver as a teacher here. And um, Carver, have you seen any changes in the curriculum or what's your view on what the curriculum does and how it's structured? The curriculum, if you're talking about race relations, you've got the PSHE citizenship curriculum, which does have an emphasis on diversity and of celebrating different faiths and different cultures. I'm more interested in looking at the history curriculum, which if you go back to 15, 20 years ago, and changes have happened and they are happening, but think about how we were taught history and how we were taught about colonialism and how we were taught. Colonialism was generally presented as positive. We didn't focus on the negative and how that happened. If you look further in the curriculum, you've got Black History Month, a tokenistic effort. One month a year, we're going to focus on the achievement of black people. But again, that focuses on a lot of American black civil rights. You've got Martin Luther King, you've got Rosa Parks, you've got Malcolm X, you've got Muhammad Ali. All of these are held up as great examples of black civil rights leaders within the US. However, we don't see many examples of British, black or Asian person being held up as an example for these students who come from totally different backgrounds to students in America. Okay. I'm just saying basically that, uh, are we saying that people now are uh, shouting racism because they have no idols to look at? Institutional racism goes beyond the curriculum. You're, you're saying that there were people to look up to in, uh, in, in America, but that hasn't curbed institutional racism over there, has it? No, it wouldn't, but I think you're getting a misunderstanding of institutional racism. You're focusing on individuals or on one thing. An institutional racism, you're looking at an institution as a whole, and you've got to look at not just individual teachers or individual schools, because there might be individual teachers who are not racist, who are anti-racist. There might be schools who are really good at promoting anti-racist messages. However, 91% of teachers are white. 
94% of school leaders are white. And this culture that's being put down is, again, a white culture. You still get Asian and black kids who are put into seclusion for three, four days at a time for their haircuts. Black students are still three times more likely to be permanently excluded. Disadvantaged students have their grades underreported. So, Carver, sorry, just to just to pick up on that point, then, just to be kind of, you know, um, really clear. Are you saying, then, that the individual teachers are making a decision to downgrade, if that's the correct word, um, students' grades from a disadvantaged background because of unwitting prejudice that they have? Or is this overt? I mean, how do we understand why teachers will be doing this? Research has shown that because of unconscious racial bias, if a teacher was to grade a student predicted grade in their GCSE exam as a DE, 63% of the time, teachers' predictions are one grade or one level below it than the actual score that the students got. But Carver, that's not a directive sent uh, by the Department of Education, is it? But I think that's where your misunderstanding is. These are institutions who are deliberately saying to their staff, go and be racist. However, the culture and the policies and the way that these institutions treat people of black and minority ethnic backgrounds means that they're culturally racist. This is not overall direct racism or someone going out and calling another person a P word or an N word. What we're talking about is the culture reinforces underachievement by students of black minority ethnic backgrounds. That's interesting because, again, if I can just link it back to the McPherson report, just to clarify, the second part of that definition of institutional racism was unwitting prejudice, ignorance, thoughtlessness and racist stereotyping. So I guess that kind of covers what you're saying, Carl. It doesn't always have to be overt, does it? It can be an unwitting you know, decision can also be a, a symptom or um, a cause of this institutional racism. I could give you a very clear example. A senior leader at school that I worked in. When this senior leader used to talk about groups of Asian or black lads, he used to say gangs. You know that gang of lads from year 10. When he talked similarly about a group of white lads, he talked about a group of lads. Now, I know this bloke. He was a friend of mine and he still is a friend of mine. We worked together for years. And I know he is not explicitly racist. I got on with him. I never heard him say a racist comment. But within school, you get this unconscious racial stereotyping where a group of brown or black lads are seen as a gang. And that verbalisation of the word gang to a verbalisation of the word group is really, really important because gang has negative connotation. The word group does not. I... Okay, first of all, I totally understand what you're saying there. And that kind of unconscious bias goes, I mean, it's ingrained in all of us at some point, whatever we say or do. It's not just quote unquote white people, it's Asians and black and ethnic minorities as well will also have some kind of, that not racism, but uh, some kind of prejudice where when your friend mentioned those gang of lads, you know, did he, how do I put this? Uh, Again, you're saying that he was being racist overtly. No, I'm not saying he was being overtly racist. What I'm saying is that is an example of an institutionally racist comment. He is not overtly racist. On an unconscious level, he saw these lads as a gang. Right, OK. So that um, so he's had that based on years and years of uh, being in that job, hasn't he? OK. Did he include, uh, now, just for the sake of argument, uh, Indian lads in there? or Chinese lads in there? This school was either a mixture of white UK, 
uh, inner city black students, inner city Asian students, majority of whom were either from a black Caribbean background or a Pakistani background. Okay, now the reason why you're probably thinking I'm going off on a tangent there as well, but again, if you look at the stats, it shows that Chinese kids and Indian kids are outperforming uh, Pakistani and Bengali kids and black and uh, black uh, children as well. I think it is an interesting point when you look at the performance of Indian students in particular. And if you allow me to go off on a tangent here, what you see is a lot of the performances, I think, is linked to the background that the students have come from. The first wave of immigration from South Asia came from Pakistan in the 60s to fulfil the labour shortage in the northern textile mills. So you've got a lot of people coming over here who came from low socioeconomic backgrounds in Pakistan and they had low education levels. There was a second wave of immigration that came over from East Africa, Uganda and Kenya and these were countries that were ruled by the British East African Inspectorate which was effectively a colonial power and what they did was when the British colonial powers set up in East Africa they got a lot of Gujarati Indians and a lot of Sikh people in general who went over there and administered the colony. Now, once these countries got independence and they decided they wanted to remove the Indians, you got a lot of wealth Indians who had accrued a lot of power and, most importantly, an English medium education, which meant that they were quite able to come into this country with more understanding of how the English system works, how English institutions work, because they administered them, and which meant they were more successful in integrating with English society. And this, in turn, led to an increase in attainment at school. And that has come more and more embedded as another generation has grown up and a generation after that has grown up that has become a lot more integrated within British society. Yeah. No, it's a good point that you've made about uh, integration there. I want to pick up on that in just a few seconds. But the reason why I asked you about uh, the Indian and the Chinese there is that, I mean, I want to bring this back to the point about individual responsibility. Now, you know, the your, your colleague that you mentioned and uh, how he mentioned gangs and groups and things like that. Now, if over the years he'd had those same lads that he refers to as gangs, uh, if he'd had them coming to school and trying the best, and maybe I'm making a sweeping generalization here. And again, I do apologize if I'm uh, about to offend anybody. But if he had those those lads that were coming into school and really putting the heart and soul into the work, not messing around, not, you know, acting boyish, if you know what I mean. And would he still hold those kind of stereotypes? So what you're saying there is that this professional, educational professional, may have had negative experiences with Asian and black students, and then that would have given him a bias against Asian and black students. Now, as, as a professional, as a professional, you cannot have a bias. But as a human being, you have... Um... Unconscious bias, though, don't you? But, Imi, can I make a point? If I'm an individual, when I'm in a professional capacity and I'm at school, I'm an individual who represents that organisation. When you're working for an institution and you're acting on behalf of that institution, your actions represent that institution. And if your actions are reinforcing racial bias, then once racial bias becomes an action, then that turns into racism. That turns into institutional racism. If the school's actions and the school's culture is one of treating groups of BAME lads congregating together as gangs, then that is institutionally racist. But if you extrapolate that out to the NHS and specifically to the police, if you're saying that your professionals um, can act in this almost subjective way based on their individual experience, that's dangerous, isn't it? Yeah, you're absolutely right. But I just want to say one thing, Zed, that... In terms of uh, those lads, if 
they had years and years of there wasn't that boyish behavior. And again, I don't want to make that sweeping generalization about all kids that uh, stand together, gang and, you know, um, but what I'm saying is if we've had it, what I'm bringing this back down to is individual responsibility, whether it be at schools, uh, whether it be in uh, in the workplace, but the individual, as in um, the black and ethnic minorities, having that uh, individual responsibility to try and either integrate or to hold themselves to a better account. I, I understand what you're saying there about individual responsibilities, and you've got lots of examples of people who have succeeded against the odds. That whole pull yourself up by the bootstrap attitude, go out, live your life, do something, not everyone has access to bootstraps to pull themselves up by. If you're living in social housing, overcrowded places, if you're living on day-to-day -day benefit, how are you going to get the actual opportunity to succeed? I'm not being naive in saying that those factors aren't very important. They are, you know, I mean, it's crucial. And socioeconomic factors will play a part in shaping you, in molding you. But what I would say is that the individual seeing those um, roadblocks in front of him, would it not be their responsibility to try and think, you know what, okay, let's think outside the box. Okay, if I don't have access to these resources, what can I do? Can I get help from the school? Can I even just, you know, look on the internet, see if there's anything on there that I can do? Can I go to the library? And Again, these all sound like very um, flippant retorts to you, Carver. But what I'm saying is the individual at some point needs to think, you know what, I need to find a better solution for my life. And once I've achieved that, then maybe society won't be as disparaging towards me. Well, I think you need a, um, I think you need to, um, there's a valid point in that controversial point there you know, somewhere. And it's a whole kind of argument that you're saying, okay, well, people should be able to um, think outside the box and look at different ways to solve their particular issues and you know conditions and to improve their social mobility etc but then in that same sense it's not a level playing field is it why should i have to work harder than my white or chinese or whoever you know compatriot why why is it on me to fight the processes that are in place the whole point of the mcpherson report we're in 2020 now surely that level that that playing field should be in you know, a level so i don't have to work harder it should be level. I can't, um, you know, I can't deny that uh, there is a misbalance. And I didn't realize the, you know, the the length of that misbalance until I was actually doing the reading. Until, you know, when you see the stats and you think to yourself, what on earth is going on? Just the sentencing stats. I think we were talking about that earlier on um, with the black and ethnic minorities getting uh, far harsher uh, sentences for typically the same crime. What all of this shows is that the reinforcement of white privilege has meant that many, many people of black minority ethnic backgrounds are suffering the negative consequences of that institutional racism by not having a way out of the situation they're in. Carly, just a quick one. You've, you mentioned white privilege a couple of times. I think it's an important point. Could you help us out with the definition of white privilege? In one book that I read by a lady called Rennie Edelard, she's been written a really good book called Why I Don't Talk to White People About Race. And what she describes white privilege as is the absence of the negative consequences of racism. And one of them is structural racism. It's the way that when we were growing up, going back to what Amy talked about, was 
when we were told by our mom or dad that you have to work twice as hard as white people to succeed. That's because unwittingly, they were telling us we've got to get over white privilege. It's the power of the benefit of the doubt. The benefit of the doubt by the police, so you're less likely to be stopped to search. Your benefit of doubt when you're getting insurance and you're likely to pay less for insurance. You're more likely to get lenient sentences if you're not from a BAME background. You're more likely to be treated as an individual if you're white than if you're brown. So, for example, when you talk about terrorist attacks, whenever there's a white perpetrator, they're treated as an individual with mental health problems. Whenever there's an Asian person who carries out a, a terrorist atrocity, they're treated as a representation of Muslims because they're brown. Now, what is that? That is white privilege. A white person is treated differently from an Asian person for doing the same kind of stupid, disgusting act. White privilege, and it's a problematic word because of two things. First of all, it's got the word white. White people are not used to being defined by their race. The second problem is privilege. And we're not talking about privilege in an economic sense. What I would describe it as is that if you've got a person from a black and minority ethnic background and a person from a white British background who were of the same income level, same socioeconomic income, the white person would face less obstacles in getting to where they need to go than the black or minority ethnic. Okay, so should every white person feel a sense of guilt then because of this white privilege? I think it's important that white people do acknowledge that white privilege exists and they do have privilege compared to a black minority ethnic person from the same socioeconomic background out there about structural racism, sure that. So no, they should not feel guilty. However, they should acknowledge that they do have some form of white privilege. They do have privilege. I totally understand what you're saying, okay? But again, at the same time, I mean, look at the British cabinet right now. Okay, you've got uh, you've got the an Indian who's uh, the Chancellor of the Exchequer. There was a British Muslim who was uh, the Chancellor before him. You've got uh, an Indian lady, uh, Priti Patel, who's uh, the Home Secretary. You've got uh, Rishi Sunak, uh, not Rishi, uh, you've got Alok Sharma, who's the Business Secretary. You've got uh, the London Mayor right now, Pete Khan, sorry. You know, and all of these guys at some point will have faced, you know, the same trials and tribulations that you're talking about but they've managed to pull through and get to the top, top, top level. Now, I know what you're going to say. You're going to say that in in terms of uh, stats, in terms of percentages, these are the absolute minutia. No, 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 no. I'm not going to say that. I think it's really, really simplistic to say that Sajid Javid, Preeti Patel, Rishi Sunak shows that the doors are open for Asian people. What it shows to me, especially in the case of Sajid Javid, is that the rejection of your own cultural background is the way to be accepted by the establishment. This is Sajid Javid, a child of an immigrant bus driver, and he has shown no evidence that he cares about the culture he came from. He'd rejected calls into Islamophobia for in the Tory party for years until it came to the leadership bid last year. And he has been on record to say that he is evidence that there is no Islamophobia within the Tory party. He's tweeted when he's singled out the word Asian when he's talking about groomers, again making into an Asian problem. This is the idiot, the man's a knobhead. This is the idiot that he said he was proud of Morris dancers who blacked up, that it's a great English institution. Now, what that shows to me is to actually be accepted within the establishment, to actually move on within the Conservative Party, what you have to be is a person who has assimilated totally to their culture and has effectively become a coconut. That's all he is. He's a coconut. And if you look at Preeti Patel, Preeti Patel, she's a walking, talking example of the Raj complex. And what do I mean when I talk about Raj complex? 
Back when the East India Company took over India, what did they do? They recruited a gang of turncore Indians. Indians who had the East India Company take over India. And Preeti Patel is just an extension of that. She is a child of immigrants from U- Uganda when the Ugandans chucked out the ruling Asian class who were there perpetuating British colonialism. She came over here and she goes on record saying this child of immigrant will not let immigrants in. We are going to have harsh kind of conditions. These aren't people who are representative of me, of you, of any normal Asian person. They're coconuts. They're power hungry. What about Sadiq Khan? What about Sadiq Khan? Yeah, Sadiq Khan is someone that you could say is not so much of a coconut in compared to Sajid Javid, MPs within the Labour Party, majority of them are elected representatives of constituencies with big working class Asian or Pakistani populations. So it's a bit of a sad indictment, really. So we're saying that to get ahead, I know you talk specifically about the Conservative Party, but um, I guess with any um, sector of society, with any kind of industry as well, you're saying you've almost got to integrate or you know, assimilate, uh, almost forego your cultural values to an extent to actually succeed. Is that what you're saying, Carver? Yes, I am. I think it's important to not understand the difference between integration and assimilation. For me, integration is working with other communities and other cultures and other ethnicities but keeping the crux of your ethnicity. So if you're a Muslim and you're truly integrated, you're able to work with white people. However, you still keep your religious aspect, your cultural aspect of what you grew up with. Assimilation is where you take on the host community characteristics. You reject your own background and you go to it. So as an Asian Muslim, it would be going to cook, it would be to get drinking, it would to take on the white culture as my own. I, I, I totally understand the point that you're making about assimilation and um, integration. I just feel that uh, you can integrate without having to assimilate too much. And I know examples that you've uh, that we've just mentioned there about, uh, well, that I mentioned actually about the uh, cabinet ministers and uh, the verging on assimilation as opposed to integration. But uh, there are people out there that have integrated, kept their own identity, kept their own faith, kept their own culture and still managed to get ahead in life. Now, nobody has to hit the, you know, the highs of uh, cabinet government and um, you know the top ends of the NHS, the top ends of education, whatever, in order to lead uh, a very good, decent life. But in order to do that, you just got to have some basic principles within life that'll see you right. And I just feel like those need to be taught to the younger ones, especially back in Asian minority, minority ethnic um, children, in order to give them that grounding. Uh, again, when I'm saying these things in my head, I keep feeling like Imran, shut up because you sound racist. No, I think uh, you know, Imran, from our you know perspective, as the three Asian guys, you know, from the north as well, we talked about role models previously, and I guess we just have to look at the examples uh, in our you know uh, local area. Uh, garages is one that you know stands out. You know, both of the brothers have been hugely successful, haven't they? And uh, obviously, we don't know what happens in their private lives, but the perception is that they've still kept on. Um, or kept in touch with their culture, their you know, religion. They're almost at the top of their game, and it doesn't seem as if they've you know sacrificed who they are. Exactly. Your guides are a great example of people who have worked hard. They overcome every privilege, and they've become a huge, massive success story. However, what we cannot do is focus on small subsections of societies and say that we should all be aiming to be like them. 
Not everyone has that entrepreneurial fair. Not everyone has that entrepreneurial skill. No, no, I'm not talking about entrepreneurial, but I'm saying that to have a basic grounding in terms of how to live your life and how to go about things in order to try and minimize what you would feel is institutional racism or some kind of bias. People do successfully do that. However, the question remains is, without the barrier of institutional racism, how well would these people actually do? Does institutional racism stop people who have done relatively well doing very well? I don't believe it does. I mean, you've got uh, Indian billionaires here now, millionaires, you've got Pakistani millionaires as well, you know, and they've done it through their own way for all. We cannot focus on three or four or five or 10 or 20 or 30 people as saying to the whole community, look up at them. You cannot look at a group of people and say that that is an example of what a whole community should be doing. But it's aspirational, though. Are we not saying that uh, the youth of today is lacking that aspirational quality? Aspiration is all good, but that does not get around the problem of institutional racism. Yeah, we've kind of uh, talked about it earlier on. I think uh, it's been a very, very interesting uh, you know, discussion. So I guess the way that I want to end it now is to think about if we're saying that institutional racism is there, and I think we all are to differing um, extent saying that it is still an issue 23 years after the McPherson port, what can the UK do to improve a situation? How can we get out of this cycle? How can we break the uh, barriers and the barricades that, you know, Carl has uh, talked about to make it truly a level playing field? I think there needs to, within the Asian community, there needs to be a tactical acknowledgement of our issues that need to be addressed. We've got massive issues in terms in the black and British Pakistani community, the employment difference between male and female, especially of a certain age group, as they get older, there's a lot different. There's also an issue with the engagement of parents and students with education to actually make them better. But then at the same time, what you could do is actually from a government point of view, look at how can we give these people real representation. Do not have the same cycle of Asian representation within Blackburn. I'm just talking about Blackburn, not just across the whole country. Our representation is limited to a handful of people. And I would really, really ask how representative are these people of the whole community in general? But in representation, what do you mean? Local council, national uh, government? I think within the local council first, these are micro problems. You could have national policy that's going to solve it. So in America, they have positive discrimination. That would be a national solution. But I think a lot of black minority ethnic problems need to be solved at a local level. If you're talking about in London and knife crime, what approaches have been successful in dealing with knife crime are local solutions rather than national solutions. I've never believed in um, positive discrimination or affirmative action, I think. Is that what they call it over there? Uh, I think uh, meritocracy should always be rewarded. You know, if... Uh, if you've got two candidates, uh, one's black, one's white, and uh, the black guy is um, more qualified than fantastic, give him the job. If the white guy is more qualified, then give him the job and don't feel guilty about it. Don't say, I'm sorry, mate, you can't have it because we need to give it to the black guy to fulfill quotas. I don't believe in any of that. Just on, just on that point, I think you can provide some uh, insight here. I don't know uh, whether you're comfortable with me telling people, but you, you stood for a local office thing, Amy. I did indeed, yes. <laughs> so, I mean, we won't go into uh, the results, but uh, I mean, I think it'd be a really, really valuable insight for you to tell us um, whether you felt that was a level playing field and did the other candidate, I don't know whether they were white or Asian, but... It, it, it was a white candidate. 
Okay, so did you feel that that result was totally fair and there was no kind of barriers in your way at all, Amy? Can you believe if I tell you that um, it was actually the Asian vote that uh, screwed me over? This is the first uh, lesson that I learned uh, about politics is tell them what they want to hear. My biggest mistake at the time, and I was told this by many of the elders afterwards, after the election, was that uh, a, a local council, basically, when you'd talk to people, they'd, the first, thing, uh, first question they would ask is, can you get a grant for my house, a housing grant uh, to do up the fr- uh, property, do up the front, do up the inside, get me uh, a new kitchen, blah, blah, blah. And uh, me being the naive little you know kid that I was, I, the first thing I'd say is, no, listen, I will try my best, but I can't promise anything. And uh, but obviously I will try for you, which I thought was being truthful and uh, being noble and which you should never, ever do. What you should do is tell them what they want to hear and say, yes, of course. Whereas, you know, my uh, my opponent uh, and I'm never going to speak ill of the uh, dead because she passed on uh, a few years back. But um, I think that was the way she went uh, about it. So basically, she'd got a lot of the vote, a lot of the Asian vote as well, because uh, she'd promised free grants, and it was it was disappointing to see. I think when uh, Carver says that we need more representation here, the public or the actual um, the communities themselves don't care about representation as long as they're getting some kind of direct benefit from it. Now, direct benefit, a lot of people back then, and we're only talking ten to fifteen years ago. Uh, direct benefit back then was um, getting a housing grant, getting my kitchen done, getting the front of the house repainted, something silly like that. Imran makes a good point. And that's what I'm talking about, engagement at a local level. Those people that you were dealing with, that, that's not real engagement, is it? And that's where the issue is coming from. British Pakistanis do not do well when it comes to engaging with institutions. And when they do engage with it, it might be from personal point of view, what can I get? And as a community, that shows a real lack of community leaders, doesn't it? Exactly. There you go. Again, I'm talking about individual responsibility. But you cannot control the behaviour of individuals. You can control the behaviour of a subset of the community, of a group of individuals that represent that community. But if we keep focusing on one person, we're not looking at a community as a whole. But it's the no, but it's the individuals that make the community, and hence the community together will alleviate any problems within the institution. You are not going to be able to convince all 30, 40, 50,000 individual Asians within Lancashire to think in a certain way. But you look at the community as a whole, you try and provide solutions that will suit the majority of the individuals within a community. You're never going to make everyone happy, are you? But in order to change the opinions of the community, you need to focus on the individual, don't you? It's just um, on a practical level to change every single person. You just can't do it, can you? Just in terms of uh, changing um, perspectives and viewpoints, you can't physically go around to every person. So it's just easier to look at the whole community and group, isn't it, Amy? Yeah, I think that's a very good uh, point to lead this discussion. Um, I know it's one of those discussions that could go on for hours and hours as well. I'm just conscious of time, guys. So thank you very much for that. And I hope that there's something for everybody in there. Uh, maybe we haven't answered every single question, but there's definitely a few points of discussion. So uh, to go on from racism to an even more emotive topic, football, back to our favourite uh, subject. And for this week, we've picked out or we've asked um, all of us to look at who we think is the best Premier League striker of all time. Ah, that's a good one. So who's going to go first? Say, I think you should go first. Do you think I should go first? If it's Emil Heskey, then I'm going to be really disappointed. Oh, bugger. In that case, maybe you could move on to yours. No, I think that there is only one candidate, really. When you talk about strikers, 
there's one name that should pop into everybody's head. And the thing is with strikers is what are they judged on? The number of goals that they score. So my recommendation would be the great Alan Shearer, OBE, and he should be a knight by now as well. Let me tell you why. He's got 260 goals in the Premier League, yeah? 260. To put that into perspective, the next highest is Wayne Rooney. Almost 50 goals behind that as well, yeah? Got the most Premier League hat-tricks. He's also been the top goal scorer twice. And he's also won, sorry, that's the, the highest number of goals, actually, in a 42-game in a season and a 38-game season. He's been the golden boot winner three times. And all of this he's done whilst playing for what we would consider mid-table, maybe, maybe even mediocre clubs, yes. Obviously, he started at Southampton. He went to Blackburn Rovers with the pressure of that price tag, 3.3 uh, million, which was a British record at the time took it on his shoulders and dragged that team to win the Premier League. And from then, he had the chance to move to Manchester United, didn't he? Where he could guarantee himself trophies. But he didn't do that because he's, he's kind of more than just about the money, wasn't he? He went to play for his boyhood club, so you could fill that in a famous number nine shirt. And he spent the majority of his career at Newcastle, banging in goals left, right and centre. So just from a stats point of view, and obviously we'll go into this in a lot more detail, but I don't think you can look past the great Alan Shearer. Alan Shearer, in the Premier League era, which started when he joined Blackburn Rovers, he was very prolific for Blackburn Rovers. But after 1999, he only got over 20 goals twice. Yeah, and let me just clarify one of uh, the reasons for that. Alan Shearer had two, maybe even three injuries, which would have ended most people's careers. You know, there was a broken leg in there as well. He was actually the, probably at the height of his uh, career, at the peak of his powers, he was taken away by injury. But the fact that he came back from those injuries and has still managed to post these figures, I think that speaks uh, you know volumes for him. The figures could have been a lot higher. 64 of his goals or something like that were from penalties? People miss penalties, don't they? It means they were gimmies. All right, OK, Amy, who's your choice? Oh, come on. Is, can there be any other besides the great Thierry Henry? He had 375 appearances, 228 goals. That's including FA Cup, uh, Europe and all the rest of it as well. 74 assists. Uh, he, uh, I know uh, Zed mentioned that Alan Shearer was a golden boot winner, what, twice? Well, this dude, three times. Well, this guy did it four times, so haha in your face. Uh, he was player of the season twice, scorer of some unbelievable goals. Uh, I mean, my, my own personal favourite, well, I've got quite a few favourites, but I mean, because you're both Liverpool players, I think you guys will remember the ones as well where uh, he took the ball past about six of your players and then put it into the uh, bottom right corner. Oh, my word. I think he skinned most of your defenders so many times. Uh, you could make literally a 10-minute YouTube clip of just Thierry Henry versus Liverpool goals. The guy was awesome. He... He played in an awesome team and the way he just carried himself, I think his stats are one thing, but just... Oh, hang on, right. okay, so there's uh, two points there. You know, sorry to uh, cut you off there, Amy. Yeah, there's two points there. So um, you said the, the way that he carried himself, yeah? For me, Henri's always going to be tainted, yeah? Did he not handball the ball in a playoff against Ireland on purpose? That shows he would go to any lengths to win. So you've got to take your hat off for that. No, that was one of his... Um, it was a blemish on his uh, impeccable record, I think. I think Henri is overrated. What? Okay, well, I think... Yes, he is overrated. Let, let's think back to... Was it a game against Juventus? 
when he missed a tap-in and a penalty and they lost. If you compare him to someone like Didier Drogba, who's an infinitely better striker than Audrey ever was. Oh, what? Infinitely better. Didier Drogba, three semi-finals, one Champions League final, scored four goals. Wayne Rooney, three Champions League finals and uh, one final appearance, got four goals. Henri, quarter-finals, semi-finals and four final, uh, and a final, only ever got six goals in that stages. Right? He joined Bar- Barca at the end of his career to piggyback on their success. He didn't piggyback on that one. That's a good point for Shearer as well. Yeah. As I said, he could have gone to uh, Man United, but he chose to stay. Henri, a lot of his goals, just think of the players that he played with, Bergkamp, Pires, Lundberg. Who did Shearer have? Wilcox, Bobby Solano. And so, you know, I think Henri, when he came to Arsenal, the other thing that other people forget is he came to the existing league title winners. They were already a very, very good team, and he did make them better. No, but he didn't make them better straight away. He, he played out on the wing, and uh, he played there for at least a season before um, uh, Arsene Wenger decided to play him up front and decided that uh, he'd be the guy that banged the goals in for us. And you, whatever you say... Father, sorry, just before, just before we rip uh, the Thierry Henry argument apart even further, tell us about your choice, Carver. My choice is a Champions League winner and an English Premier League winner. He's a Golden Boot winner twice. He was the only footballer to ever make it onto the Time 100 most influential list. And he holds the record for most Premier League goals in a 38-game season. It's not Alan Shearer, you were wrong. Do you know who it is? It's Mo Salah. Now, let me, before you two jump in, I know this is a controversial choice, but let's just break it down. If you look at Mo Salah's first 100 games... He got 70 goals. He's only ever beaten by Alan Shearer, which I'll give you that. Most importantly, let's look at those stats. Mo Salah's also game is 0.63. Alan Shearer's is 0.58. Add to that the fact that Mo Salah has got 28 assists just in his Premier League. We're not including Champions League or any other appearances here. Compare that to uh, Henri, who only got 74 in his entire Arsenal career. That's including every all the tournaments. Shearer joined Rovers, who were then the highest spending team in Europe, on rejoined a title winning team. Mo Salah joined a Liverpool team that had barely scraped fourth. And then he went on to score 44 goals in his first season. Look, there's no doubt, from my point of view, that Mo Salah's a great player, but he just hasn't been in the Premier League for a long enough one. Secondly, the uh, um, assist figure that you talk about, he's not really an out and out striker, is he? No, he's not. He's a winger. And that's what makes it even more astonishing. He's going to create goals and assists for other people, isn't he? Yeah, uh, but he's not going to score the amount of goals that he does if he was just an ordinary winger. And that's what makes him such a great striker. Unlike Thierry Henry, he's not converted from being a winger to a striker. He still plays as an inside forward, still technically a winger. But he gets consistently high goals. If the season had ended, he was going to win the Golden Boot again. He was on line to get 23 goals by the end of the season. 23, still massively shorter than uh, Alan Shearer's record or Thierry Henry's record, I'm just saying. Okay, but we're talking about different eras, aren't we? We're talking about Shearer and Henry in the 90s, throughout the noughties. But let's compare Salah to modern-day strikers. Aguero's goal-to-game ratio is 0.69, and he's only got 46 assists. Harry Kane, his is 0.68. So they're comparable, but the key difference there is Aguero plays for Man City as their centre-forward, and Kane is an out-and-out centre-forward. And he's managing to outscore or keep up with them while getting more assists. So who has more of an impact as a forward-thinking player? I think the other thing with Salah is that it's very difficult to distinguish him from that front three, isn't it? 
And because it's such a great front three, I don't think he'll ever be considered great in his own right because he's playing with two absolutely world-class players in Sane and Firmino as well. Yeah, but if you look at Shearer, he, he played in teams that were geared towards his strengths. That 1993 to 1996 Blackburn Rovers team, I used to go and watch them. And what did they have? They had Stuart Ripley on one wing, Jason Wilcox on the other wing. They had uh, Mike Newell as a target man, crossing and knocking down for Alu Shearer to bang him in. I think also, currently, you've got to look at the quality of defenders as well. Isn't it easier to score goals in these days with all the law changes? When you look at Shearer, he played against some beasts, didn't he? Tony Adams, Keon, you know, whatever. All these, you know, they were kind of no-nonsense defenders. So it was a lot harder to score in those days than it is today. Virgil van Dijk is it a beast? Harry Maguire is it a beast? I, I disagree with your assertion that defences were better back then. Yes, Tony Adam was a great English defender, but let's face it, he was a bit of a donkey, weren't he? He was never going to make any world lists, was he? He never led England to a semi-final. Yeah, Martin Keown, oh my God, yeah. Great, scary-looking defender, but he was no John Stones. He was no Emmerich Laporte. John Stones is rubbish. Who do you prefer to play against, Martin Keown or Stones? Yeah, I mean, there you go, exactly. You know, John Stones is not fit to lace Martin Keown's boots. Yeah, so basically, those are our three, yeah? I mean, there's a few people that we've left off the list which are going to be controversial as well, aren't they? Notable, uh, I think, well, Didier Drogba's one of them. Aguero, another one. I mean, just in terms of stats, people would struggle to get anywhere close to Aguero, wouldn't they? The only thing I would say about Shearer is, well, I mean, there's been a lot of these polls, you know, recently, haven't they? And the BBC one, they had Ian Wright, who was an Arsenal uh, legend, and, you know, Gary Lineker on there. And in the end, who did they both choose as their best Premier League goal scorer of all time? Well, was Henri, was it? It's all politics, because Ian hated Henri for uh, taking his position. That's what it was. You know, at the end of the day, the two that you've got, in terms of Shearer and Henri, they're going to be up there and they're going to be up there amongst the greatest ever because they did a lot. But for the short-term impact Mo Salah's had, I think I think he beats either one of them, hands down. If Salah continues to post those figures for the next five, six, seven years, then fair enough, we may have an argument. But at the moment, I think it's clear that Alan Shearer is the best, yeah? I think uh, Ramzan's uh, giving you uh, low blood sugar and that's why yeah, you're talking cobblers. With Henri as well, I mean, he did a lot of awful things, yeah, but two, you know, stand out, yeah? That penalty that him and Pires had to concoct. <laughs> I knew you were going to mention that. We still won that game, by the way. You did win that game, but the worst thing that Thierry Henri ever did was with them weirdly sexual Papa and Nicole adverts. What was going on between Papa and Nicole there? That was a really appropriate relationship. All right, guys, I think on that note, um, let's call it a day, yeah? So thank you very much for your input. And we'll be back again next week with another topic. Vava boom, boys. Thanks for listening to Hara, Imi and Kazi on KitCast. Follow us on Twitter at Kik underscore cast.